Well, when I was in high school, unfortunately, I was not the friendliest guy. And don't get me wrong, I, mean, I got along with the teachers, I got along with mostly everybody at school, had a lot of friends, but I had a really bad habit of picking at people. And some would say, well, it's, it was a Mason gene. I guess it's one of the reasons why I may have tough skin today or I can do ministry because we pick. But I was unmerciful. And I oftentimes sought to get a laugh from others' expense or to hurt them. And I always wanted to ruffle someone's feathers. I was always looking to kind of just pinpoint and, and, and just try to be the center of attention. And if there was ever a moment really where anybody would try to give me a verbal jab back, like I prided myself in knowing that I could cut them down, like with just a couple of really quick words, just hard words. My senior year, things began to change. And I began to take my walk with Christ more serious, began to repent of some of these sins. And I surrendered to a call to ministry and things were changing. And so I said to myself, especially, okay, when I graduate from high school and I move to college, I've got a fresh start. And I'm going to be kind to people. I'm going to try my best to be gracious towards others. I'm not going to pick at people outside of my family, at least. Family's a fair game. I'm going to seek to be friends with people that I never would have been friends in school with. I'm going to take interest in things I never would have taken interest in. And honestly, it was great. See what I had missed out on. Around the same time, I was preaching, and I was a part of what's called a pulpit supply. So when pastor was out on vacation or a church needed someone to fill the pulpit, I would preach. And I was preaching throughout West Florida and Alabama and Georgia. And I eventually was asked to come back and preach at my home church, First Baptist Church of Hilliard. And I remember finishing that sermon and seeing someone that I knew really well back from school. And he goes, man, you'll never believe this. We were, a bunch of us were talking the other day and your name came up. He said, and I had said that you were pursuing ministry, that you were preaching and this one guy that I knew very well, he was often the butt of my jokes. He goes, oh, I remember Ryan Mason. Is Ryan Mason is called to the ministry? He goes, yeah. He goes, man, that guy was such a jerk. He goes, he was so cruel. He goes, there's just no way. I, I just don't believe it. And so hearing this, I said, okay, well, I got to reach out to this guy. And believe it or not, I had wrote an apology to quite a few people explaining to them how I had changed and how sorry that I was. And so I wrote this thing to this gentleman and I said, listen, I was immature. I was not taking my walk with Christ serious. I'm sorry, I was self-centered. I want you to forgive me. Will you please forgive me? And it took a while for him to respond. And finally, a couple hours later, finally the response came. And I remember beginning to read it, and basically in a nutshell, this is what the guy said. He said, you may have these churches fooled, you may have your family fooled, but you're not fooling me. I don't think you can change. So no, I don't accept your apology. And man, it crushed me. See, it didn't matter that I was convicted over this, that I repented of such things. It didn't matter that there were nights where I literally would stay up, my stomach just in knots of thinking of how cruel that I was. 
None of this mattered. He could not accept the fact that I had changed. As we come to our text this morning, what's astonishing to me about this passage is that here we find a group of people who knew Jesus for a long time. They watched him grow up. They remember him as a little kid, maybe riding his tricycle throughout the streets of Nazareth. Like, they knew who he was, and yet they refused, as now he's an adult pursuing his ministry, they refused to accept who he truly was. They refused to believe in his mission. They refused to accept what he had to say. And here's the thing. His situation was totally different than mine. Jesus wasn't a jerk. Jesus wasn't cruel. In fact, Luke Luke 2.52 tells us that as Jesus grew, he grew in favor both with God and man. Jesus was liked. Jesus had a great reputation. His family was well known. But the minute that he begins his earthly ministry... The minute that he begins proclaiming, even as Mark 1 would say, repent for the kingdom of God is near, nobody in his hometown wanted any part. This morning, I want to talk to you about the danger of assumption. I want to talk to you about a people who became far too comfortable in their understanding of who they believed Jesus was, a people who became far too comfortable in their understanding of what true religion was, and ultimately a people who became far too comfortable in their understanding of what the Messiah should do. And as we flesh out the text today, I'm convinced that what Luke is trying to say, the main point that we're really going to hit on this morning is this, there's a great danger in always assuming you know what is right. Because oftentimes, especially even for those who claim to be followers of Christ, the assumptions that they make are either completely separated from God's word or they are grossly misinterpreted. And left with this kind of understanding, left with these sort of assumptions, they will eventually lead to destruction. So as we begin this morning, I want us to look at two specific assumptions that the crowds make. And the first assumption is ultimately found in verses 22 through 24. I want you to notice with me first that there's an assumption concerning identity. Now, in order to understand this, we've got to first go back. We've got to be able to establish exactly who Christ is. And so I want you to think about Luke chapter 3 for a second. Think about when Jesus finds himself being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And as he goes under the water and begins to come back out, the Bible tells us that the Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit that is empowering Jesus for his earthly ministry. Spirit is falling upon him. It has anointed him. As the Spirit falls, the Bible tells us that a voice cries out from the heavens that says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So whereas the spirit was commissioning Jesus, was empowering Jesus for his earthly ministry, the father is declaring his approval. So you see a commissioning of God the father, God the Holy Spirit, and what you begin to realize is that this is no ordinary human being. Yes, he is fully man, but he's also fully God. He is the son of God. Then you get to Luke 4. Led by the Spirit, Jesus finds himself not in synagogues where he begins to preach, but instead he finds himself in a wilderness. And and as you begin to, to read this text, you're discovering that he is being tempted by Satan, and you automatically have to think about Genesis 3. 
that you go back to a garden where Adam finds himself, not in a wilderness, but in a perfect environment, in a place where the environment is not hostile towards mankind, and yet when he approaches this serpent, who is ultimately Satan himself, he gives in to temptation. Now we find Jesus not in a perfect environment, but instead we find him in a hostile environment, that would wage war against humanity, and he's tempted not by a serpent, not, not by the devil in disguise, but the devil for who he is, and not once but three times. And yet what's different about what Jesus does? Jesus overcomes the temptation. Jesus overcomes what Adam never could. So not only is he the one anointed by the Spirit, commissioned by the Father, he is ultimately the new and better Adam who overcomes the very thing we never could. This is what Luke is trying to convey. This is what he's wanting us to see. This is the identity of Christ. Then you come to the passage that Pastor Mike preached last week. And so now here is Jesus led by the Spirit to preach in the synagogues, and he is preaching a message of repentance. He is preaching a message saying that the kingdom of God is near, and everyone is blown away by his message, and he's being invited to this synagogue and that synagogue. And they're completely amazed by him because this is a guy who doesn't simply quote other rabbis. This is a guy who preaches with passion. It's a guy who preaches with authority, thus saith the Lord. And so, of course, his hometown hears this and they're like, no, we got to get Jesus. So he finds himself in Nazareth. He begins to preach and as he stands up that day, the Bible tells us that he turns the scroll and he goes to Isaiah 61, a passage that is dealing directly with the Messiah. And think about what he says. With Isaiah 61, he describes it as the Messiah with whom the spirit of the Lord will anoint. It is the Messiah who would proclaim good news to the poor. It is the Messiah who would proclaim liberty to the captives. It is the Messiah who would give sight to the blind and liberty to those who were oppressed. And as Jesus finishes reading the text, he rolls the scroll back up and he says to people who've known him his entire life, today the scripture has been fulfilled. Imagine this. Say, so what is he saying here? He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's been anointed by the Spirit, Luke 3. I'm the one who is able to proclaim good news to the poor. Why? Because I have overcome the very thing that people find themselves in poverty over. It's not just temporary ailments. It's not just physical setback, but it's a spiritual poverty. Being captive, being held in bondage to sin. He says, I'm the one who has been anointed. I'm the one who is going to proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed. So your hope must not be in some sort of so-called Messiah who will deliver you from a Roman empire, but it must be found in this poor guy from Nazareth who will make you ride before the Father. And then here we are, verse 22. And the Bible tells us that when they hear this, basically their jaws are on the floor. Like they are moved by this guy. They are mesmerized by what he has said. And everyone's saying, oh, man, this is, this is incredible. Listen to, to how well he speaks. 
Listen to how he keeps us so engaged. And as everybody seems to kind of be on cloud nine, suddenly from the back of the synagogue, someone chimes in and says, I hate to bring everyone back down to earth, but isn't this Joseph's son? We know Joseph. We know Mary. We know that he comes from a poor family. And sure, he was respectful as a kid. He always said, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. He wasn't mischievous. He didn't throw the baseballs at the moving cars that were going down Nazareth streets. He was a good kid. But Messiah, Lord, don't be ridiculous. You see the problem here. There's an assumption concerning Jesus' identity. Everyone is familiar with Jesus. They know what social class he was part of. They know that he wasn't born in a palace, but instead a feeding trough. So although they're impressed with his speaking ability, there's no way that he can be the Messiah. I look at a text like this this morning, and I can't help but think that the problem that the people of Nazareth had is the same problem that so many people today have. He's a great teacher. He's inspired many. For especially the, the, the modern-day social justice warrior, he was a revolutionary who, who sought to the attention and the needs of those who were considered poor and marginalized and vulnerable. He was a great figure in history. I mean, Gandhi himself said, I have no problem with your Christ. I, I, I like your, your Jesus, the, the figure in history, but Lord, no. And it's an assumption that's made not just by people on the outside of the church, it's an assumption that's even made by people on the inside. People who assume that Jesus is not some sort of lamb that has been led to a slaughter on our behalf. But instead, they simply look at him as a laid-back buddy, as a long-haired, sandal-wearing hippie that just wanted peace on earth, man. This is how they view him. And yet what the people fail to realize, what so many in the church fails to realize, is that Jesus is not simply interested in meeting a temporary need, Jesus is interested in people falling down onto their hands and their knees and submitting to him as Lord. Who is Jesus to you? Is he the son of God? Is he the son of God who came to live a perfect life? Is he the son of God who overcame temptation for your benefit? Is he the son of God who put an end to the reign of sin and death through a cross? Is he the son of God who resurrected on the third day so that we ourselves could obtain eternal life? Is he the son of God who was promised to one day return so that when he does, he will establish a physical throne and he will reign for all eternity with us by his side? Or is he simply one that we would give admiration to you as a good leader. Many of us claim to know Jesus, and many of us here would say, absolutely, that's exactly who we understand Jesus to be, and we say it with our mouths, but ultimately our hearts are far from it. Not only is our hearts far from it, but we basically live as practicing atheists. 
thinking to ourselves either he really doesn't exist and these are just a bunch of really good stories that we should seek to live by, or he does exist, but he just doesn't care. None of us can fool Jesus. We may be playing this whole church game this morning, but Jesus knows the hearts of every single one of us. He knew the hearts of the people here. Because although they are marveling at his words, although they are shocked and even impressed by his speaking ability, he knows what they're thinking. And so look at verses 23 through 24. He calls them out on it. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, he says, what you're wanting is for me to provide you more evidence. What you want is for me to provide you with more proof. In other words, put up or shut up. This is what you're, you're wanting. And I kind of think of it this way. My middle son, sweet little Micah, is a prankster like me. And Micah comes to me as I'm sitting at the recliner, and he's got one of my favorite cookies in the entire world, Oreos. And he says, Daddy, I've got an Oreo for you. And he's kind of got like a mischievous look on his face. And as I begin to look at the Oreo, I begin to realize that the cream is not like beautifully in a perfect circle inside the cookie, but instead it's like all over the cookie. And it doesn't smell sweet, it's minty, almost as if it's toothpaste, (laughs) right? And he's holding the cookie up and he says, if you want this, I'll give it to you. This is a cookie for you. And what is it that I'm going to do? Am I going to eat the cookie? Absolutely not. I say, tell you what, I'll eat the cookie if you first take a bite out of it. No, you just eat it. (laughs) This is what the people of Nazareth are doing. Prove it. You say you're anointed by the Spirit. You say you're this great miracle worker. Prove it. We want to see evidence. And you know, oftentimes... We ourselves do the same exact thing. We will serve you. We will submit to you as long as you meet my financial need. Provide me the evidence as to why I should submit to you. Provide for me. So much so that even some churches will say, give us the tithes and offerings. And if God doesn't give you a bunch of blessings back within 90 days, you can get a refund. This is what's being said. We'll serve you if you meet my financial need. We will serve you, but you have to heal either myself or someone I love. We will serve you, but you have to give me the job that I want. We'll serve you, but you have to change the way in which my husband or my wife speaks to me. We'll serve you, but you've got to provide for me a husband or a wife. You've got to provide for me a child, or you've got to tame this child that's just wreaking havoc in our home. We'll serve you, but it's got to be after I see proof that it's worthy to serve you. And sadly, many people, even people who I've known, who I assumed were strong in the faith, and and listen, it could happen to anyone, are sideswiped by something that takes place. 
as they're frustrated and they're upset and they say after they have lost the person that they love or they've lost all of their retirement or they've lost the husband or wife that they thought was going to make them happy, they find themselves angry, but the main person they're angry with isn't themselves or anyone else, they're angry with God. And they say things like, why should I serve him? He's done nothing for me. You ever thought this? He's done nothing for me. And I sit and I listen to these people say this, and I say, oh, if you only knew. He's done nothing for me. If you only knew. Listen to me. Jesus doesn't come to the earth in order to fill your bank account. Jesus doesn't come to get you into the right college. Jesus doesn't come to provide you with a knight in shining armor. Jesus doesn't come to simply give you children or to establish yourself as reputable in this community. Jesus Christ has come to set spiritually dead people to make them alive. That was his mission. Jesus came to make us right before the Father. Jesus came so that our sins would be forgiven. And if Jesus never did anything more than that, it would be enough. And some people say yes. And some people say amen. But they're not living that out. I've myself been guilty at times of not living this out. There's an assumption concerning identity. And ultimately with verse 24, Jesus looks at them and he says, of course. You're demanding more evidence. You're needing more proof. And of course, no prophet is ever accepted in his hometown. Now, some people would simply end there. But Jesus doesn't. He moves on and now he begins to do something that is really going to ruffle the feathers of the people. Because there's an assumption concerning identity here, but secondly, what we're going to see is there's an assumption concerning true religion. And so with verses 25 through 30, this is basically how it's played out. Jesus says, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. Now, they don't really have Bibles, but it sounds good for us because we have the Bible. So that's how we're going to play this out. Turn with me to 1 Kings 17. And as they all turn there, he says, you remember this time, right? As we're looking at the text and he's talking about the fact that there were many widows, we, we've got to put it into context. Basically, 1 Kings tells us that the people of Israel had done great evil in the sight of God. So much so that even when it comes to their king, a man by the name of Ahab, he was considered to be the most wicked king of all of the kings in Israel. And God is angry by this, so he approaches Elijah the prophet, and he says, here's what's going to go down. Because of their wickedness, because of their unbelief, I am going to send a famine, a drought. It's going to last for three and a half years. There's going to be much death. There's going to be much loss. And Jesus begins to articulate this, and he says, there was a whole lot of widows who were hurting during this time. And yet... Notice the language that he uses. Elijah was sent to none of them. Sent by whom? God. Instead, as he continues, he says, Elijah is sent to a widow outside the camp of Israel. 
a woman in a place referred to as Zarephath. And to basically understand what's happening with this passage is the woman has a jar of some flour, some oil, and there's just enough left for her and her son to have one last meal. And as soon as this meal is finished, they basically are going to prepare themselves to die. And so she begins to make this meal, this meal and all of a sudden she hears a knock at the door. And it's Elijah the prophet. And Elijah is standing there, and when she opens the door, he says, man, I'm, I'm starving. We've all been affected by this famine. Can you just give me something to eat? And she says, well, I've just got a little bit in this jar, just a little bit of oil. There's just a small cake. He goes, listen, if you do this, if you provide this, the Lord has said he will ensure that you will eat for many days. And do you know what this widow does? She doesn't demand for his credentials. She doesn't say, well, what about this? Or, or prove to me that God has truly said this. Instead, she says, okay. And she makes this cake and she cuts a piece off for Elijah and then the Bible says that God provided for this widow. You say, what is the significance here? What, what exactly does this mean? Because here's the deal. The moment that the people of Nazareth hear this, their blood is beginning to boil. What Jesus is saying here is, listen, you are no better than the people of Israel who are wicked. You're demanding more proof. You have unbelief in your heart. And if you continue with this mindset, the Lord is not going to bring this promise specifically for you. He's going to go to another people outside the camp of Israel. And for these people, this was a non-negotiable. This is ridiculous. They were God's chosen people. They were in synagogue every week. They were doing everything right. How dare Jesus say that they were wicked? That he would go to someone else other than them? I would probably have stopped there. But Jesus doesn't. He goes, now, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. And so they go to 2 Kings 5, and he says, looking specifically at verse, let's see, where is it, 27. He says, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. So this isn't Elijah, this is Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. What's the significance of this? What is happening? Basically, what's taking place is, is the people are still wicked. They're still practicing unbelief, and the Lord sends the nation of Syria to judge the nation of Israel. And what he says here is, he goes, listen, when war was taking place throughout Israel and Syria was killing our people, was wiping out villages and communities, there's this one Syrian commander by the name of Naaman who's probably responsible for doing this and carrying out God's judgment. And yet, although there were many lepers throughout all of the territory of Israel, he spares this guy, a Gentile. So what, what's, what's the story? Naaman is stricken with leprosy. And Naaman discovers that the people of Israel serve apparently this mighty God. And he, now this is crazy to me, but he has the audacity to go to King Ahab and actually say, Hey, I've heard your God can heal. Can, can, can you heal me? Can you guys heal me? 
And Ahab was like, are you insane? Am I God? Like, do I have, why are you even here? You, you need to leave from here. Elisha catches wind of this. And Elisha says, oh, no, 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 he can heal you. You're carrying out the Lord's work. So here's what you do. Go into the Jordan River, dip into it seven times, and as soon as you're done, you'll be healed. And Naaman hears this, and at first he's really like, that's it? Yeah, that's it. And so he's led to the Jordan. He goes into the water, and sure enough, he's healed. The people at this point are enraged. Because Jesus isn't just talking about some sweet little old widow who really has kind of been caught in the middle of these battles between Jewish people and Gentiles. Now what Jesus is saying is, is I'm going to go towards the very ones who not only are not Jewish, but they're some of the very people who've been responsible for wiping you guys out. You keep having unbelief. You keep demanding for more proof, and this is what's going to take place. You're looking for a deliverer to deliver you from the nation, ultimately the empire known as Rome. The gospel will spread throughout Rome, and many of those people will be saved. And hearing this, the Bible tells us that they're so enraged that they begin to push him out of the synagogue. You think about this. You ever seen anybody get in a fight? And the aggressor is kind of nose to nose with the guy. What's he doing? He's just keep going as he's running his mouth. The other guy's just backing up, right? Just keeps backing up. This is basically what they're doing to Jesus to the point that they get him outside of town and they're going to grab him by his hands and feet, hold him over their head and dash him to the rock so that he would die. Of course, he gets through. But you say, how is this an assumption concerning true Religion, well, we see it. These were a people who were convinced they were fine. These were a people who were convinced that they needed a physical deliverer to get them out of all of their temporary struggles. They weren't worried about any sort of spiritual deliverance because they weren't sinful. And yet Jesus is saying, no, that's exactly what you are. And they're so insulted by this that they don't want to hear it to the point that they seek to kill him. And if God would have allowed it, he would have died on that opportunity. So again, I look at this and I say to myself, isn't this like the world? Can I just say, it's hard to share the gospel in other parts of the world. It's hard to share the gospel with people of other faiths, but it is especially hard to share the gospel with people who are convinced they're right with the good Lord when in all reality they're not. Our culture finds themselves guilty of what's referred to as cultural Christianity for decades thinking all we had to do was pray a prayer, fill out a card, get dunked in a baptistry, and we're good to go. There's no confession of sin, there's no discipleship, there's no holiness, there's no emphasis on transformation. It's all about getting out of hell, right? I mean, as the great theologian Kenny Chesney says, everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to go down. It's all about trying to have the Savior. Everyone likes a Savior, but far less want to submit to the Savior as Lord. 
I prayed a prayer. Some of you are here this morning because you think you're checking off that spiritual box in your life. I prayed a prayer. I don't have to do this anymore. And and so the mentality, the understanding is, okay, well, if you don't have to do this, at least just come on Easter and Christmas. And, And throughout your life, when you come, make sure you throw maybe a little bit of money into the offering plate. Make sure that you vote Republican. Make sure you say grace before your dinner and don't even think about wearing a hat when you pray. And make sure you get a family Bible. I went into homes with people who had not set foot in the church for 10 years, but they had that family Bible. They didn't open it, but it was there. A preacher had given it to them once. Is this authentic Christianity? No. It's not flattering. It's not cute. It's not what makes the Bible Belt such a great place to raise your kids. It's demonic. It's what's destroying the church. And it's the kind of mentality where we say ridiculous things like, well, if we could just get prayer back in schools, preacher, that's what would do it. Listen to me, prayer won't do a thing. How many people prayed and cried out to the Lord and he says, your lips are proclaiming praises, but your hearts are far from me. It's not prayer that will change the schools, it's Christ. Christ is what changes schools. Better yet, let's take it into the home. Christ is what changes homes. When families, when parents are radically transformed, and not only are they prioritizing the things of God, but they're also demonstrating it to their children. They're discipling their children. They're praying for the salvation of their children. As they see these things and as the children are saved, then the schools are changed. Then the communities are changed. Then the nation is changed. It's not just about prayer. It's not just about voting red. Now listen, don't get me wrong, and I'm not going to go deep into this because I'll get in trouble. Is there a way that could be maybe more profitable for Christians to be able to enjoy liberty here? Is one seeming to be more influential than the other? Sure. But it's not the solution. It's temporary. The nation is but a vapor. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. As we prepare to close, I just want to hit on one thing here. Because especially today, with a nation that is so hostile towards ultimately the things of God, there's a new part to cultural Christianity where there's this emphasis now that what is essential for the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we speak out against those who are oppressing others. That this is what we as the church should focus on. This is what our ministry should be about. That we should just engage and speak out for the injustices that are taking place in our nation. Should we do that? Absolutely. Because it's happening. But listen to me. It's not what saves. It's not essential to the gospel. And listen to me, it's not about who's in the Oval Office. It's not about redistribution of wealth. It's not about a new government policy. 
It is about submitting ourselves to the God over the president, to the God over the nation, which is Jesus Christ. That's the solution. So we cannot stress enough here at this church that what is essential is preaching verse by verse and measuring everything that we declare based on God's word. And in those times, we speak out towards injustices and we call people out whenever they they claim to follow Christ when in all reality they don't. All of these things are important, but what we will stand firmly on is the word of God. There's nothing else that we can do. There are some of you here this morning who have a false understanding of Christ. Some of you claim to know him as Savior, but you've refused to submit to him as Lord. You don't see him as the Messiah, as the Deliverer. And this morning, I would urge you, come to Christ. Trust in the one who lived the perfect life, who died the death reserved for you. And who rose so that you could have eternal life and be transformed in this life now. There are others of you who are hurting this morning. And it could be for a variety of reasons. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've lost your finances. Maybe you've lost your reputation, your marriage. Maybe you've experienced oppression. None of us are going to... Make light of what you're going through, but listen to me. Some of you are angry, and I want you to know, although you may be even angry at God, God loves you. God loves you so much, and it's ultimately demonstrated through the cross. Where this Messiah, who was rejected by even those in his hometown, would willingly give up his life so that we could have ours. Life devoted to Christ. Where are you at this morning? Who is Jesus to you? What is true faith? May it be measured on this, not on false assumptions. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, I thank you for our church. I thank you for our church's unwavering commitment to standing upon the word and seeking to Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But Father, in a crowd this big, there's no question. There are people here who like the idea of following Christ. But they don't truly want to give him their all. They think that he's fine with them understanding him as Savior, but he's not submitting to them as Lord. And Father, I pray that they would be convicted by your spirit. And that they would cry out for repentance and be changed. Father, I pray that this church would point people to Christ. That they would see that there is oftentimes legitimate cases to speak out for those who are hurting. There are times, Father, where we would defend those who are being mistreated. But Father, most importantly, that we would point people not simply to the hope of some sort of man-made system to provide them with the best solution, but that we would ultimately point them to Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to glorify you and to take a passage like this and not simply allow it to go in one ear and out the other, but that we would allow it to take effect in our lives, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.